Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have an exciting treat for you today. This guy that I'm going to introduce you to, if you don't already know him and his story, you will be fascinated. Uh, One of the neatest people that I know. He is the author of the book, B2B Sales Secrets, and it just released on Audible. So you can go to Audible or you can go to to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, pick up that book, or you can find him as the co-host of the Lead, Sell, Grow podcast, with Harry Spate, and my guest today is Eric Conavalov. Eric, welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast. Man, how are you today? Man, I'm doing great. I love Intentional Encourager. Brian, you are the Intentional Encourager, so thanks for having me, brother. Dude, I, I am so glad we were able to pull this off. You know, we, we and, and, I, and I don't mind pulling the curtain back. We, we have fought through some technical challenges, but Eric's story is so riveting. As he, as we, as he and I were talking, I knew that this was a story that I wanted to tell. And so, Eric, you do not have a usual background, and I'll start there. You know, most people, like myself, we were born in the United States. We grew up in the United States. I grew up in the, in the Midwest, in Southern Ohio. You took a different route with your family to get to the United States. You're not an American born citizen, but you took a very unusual journey to get here. Talk to me about your early childhood growing up in the former USSR. Man, you know, (laughs) there's a saying that says you can't see the picture when you're inside the frame. So when you're saying you didn't have a normal childhood, I'm like, I, well, that's the only one I had. I don't know what to compare. Well, to. and I say normal as <laughs> as opposed to someone like myself who grew up in the United States and sure. and things like that. I didn't have the same type of childhood. And most people probably listening to this podcast grew up in the United States. You know, typical you know red, white, and blue mom, apple pie, all that all that Americana stuff. And so yeah, that's why I, I did it that way. But yeah, you did not grow up here in the states. I did not, not until I was 10. So my family, we grew up in former USSR, and um, the country now is called Azerbaijan. Um, So there was a civil war that broke out late 80s, and they started letting people out. We were Jewish refugees because the the war that broke out there was between Armenians and Azeris, and uh, it was over religion, Muslims fighting Christians, like all kinds of crazy stuff. We had tanks on the streets. Like it was... It was pretty wild, but as a little kid growing up, it was kind of cool to see, you know, looking back at it now. So that process was really awesome back then because to go through that whole immigration process, you had to live in Austria for about six to seven months and then had to live in Italy. So my family got moved to Austria, then to Italy. And this is while, you know, the U.S. is dealing with all the paperwork or whoever the immigration authorities are that are dealing Mm -hmm. with all the paperwork. Most of my family ended up in Israel, like cousins, aunts, uncles. Oh, wow. And, and me, my mom, stepfather, two stepsisters, and my sister, six of us ended up here in Baltimore. So I grew up in the Baltimore area, uh, you know, since I was 10. 
And, uh, you know, now I like to say I am a uh, red, white, and blue-blooded American. Yeah, you, know? you are. And I've got to ask you because, you know, I, I've, I've heard immigration stories and people were much younger than you that came here. And they said, well, I, I don't really remember my native tongue. I don't really remember a lot of things. But, man, you were right in your formative years where you could have probably remembered everything. Was it a difficult transition for you and your family when you did finally end up in the United States? Or was it, thank God, we're just out of Azerbaijan where all the civil war and fighting was going on? It was definitely a difficult transition because I spoke no English whatsoever. Like <laughs> like Bugs Bunny taught me how to speak English. I, I don't remember. I used to, I used yeah. to greet people. I would say, what's up, doc? You know, because I thought yeah. that was the normal thing to do. Um, so, yeah, growing up in a neighborhood in Baltimore where there weren't many immigrants, I was kind of the minority. Man, I got my butt beat <laughs> daily, it seemed like, by the, by the neighborhood kids. But um, and I had no idea why they were doing it because I didn't speak any English either. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't very easy growing up. And and I have to think, too, and I want to just park on this for just a second, because, you know, American kids do not have a lot of challenges like that. And, and I'm just going to be very honest. I didn't have those same challenges, you know, having to move my family 6000 miles end up in a foreign country, you end up in a, in a large city and things like that. When you think about your childhood and where you came from to where you are, what crosses your mind as far as, because I would look at it and I would say, man, that is just unreal what you overcame. Do you ever think about that in your own mind, Eric? No, no, I never do. I think I'm one of the luckiest people in the world that gets to live here uh, and I thank my my mom, right, who in in her mid to late thirties, and my stepfather dropped everything they knew their whole lives and moved to a whole new country. They they had professions over there, you know, and they moved here and became, you know, taxi cab driver and like working in a gas station. Um, wow. But this is this is the no doubt in my mind. There's no better country in the world. I still look at myself as the luckiest dude in the world to have grown up here and to, that I get to raise my kids here. I'm super grateful. Have you ever gone back to Azerbaijan? Do you ever keep in touch with family over there that, that you had to leave behind? No. So my um, my father still lives in, in Russia, not in Azerbaijan. He's in, not in Azerbaijan in St. Pete, but I don't really, we don't have that kind of relationship. And I think there are so many other beautiful places in the world that I'd rather go see that I never got a chance to go back there yet. But down the road, I think it's a place that I definitely take my kids to. Well, and again, I, I just admire the fact of, of we, we think we've got difficulty here in the United States, and we're recording this in the midst of a pandemic. But in my lifetime, and it's been 150-plus years since our country has gone through a civil war, I can't imagine what that would be like. I can't imagine being a parent of a young child and having to protect to that level where you emigrate so far from home. And I, I just want to say, man, I appreciate the stance that you come from in feeling the way you do about the United States. You go to be a teenager you, in your teenage years, you decide to do something 
a lot of American kids decide to do. You joined the Marine Corps. What was the impetus behind your joining the United States Marine Corps, Eric? Man, I think you're going to think less of me when I tell you the true story. So I went. No, this is what I want, man. I want, you know, this is this is what this is about. Because, again, when you find out what people, you know, what people go through in life, to me, I appreciate the things that people go through in life when you find out the backstory. I mean, I didn't want to be a pharmacist. I didn't want to be a pharmacist because I didn't want to go to school for five years, (laughs) you know, so. All right. So, I I mean, I'll tell you the true story, but you're probably going to say you don't want me on your show anymore. It's kind of shallow. But here it goes. So I was a knucklehead going through school, one of those kids that either was suspended or, you know, I got expelled three times uh, going through school. Like well, see, grade, what happened was you were talking all that trash <laughs> with Bugs Bunny. You were using, yeah, you were using Bugs Bunny <laughs> jive talk, man. Sure, that we'll go with that one. Yeah. Um, and I knew college wasn't for me back then. Like, I just probably wouldn't even get accepted if I tried, but I knew that's not something I wanted to do. I also didn't want to work in a grocery store my whole life. Not that anything's wrong with that. I just, no. it wasn't for me. And um, so I, I, you know, saw some army commercials. I decided to go into the recruiter's office and this office had had, you know, your army, Navy, Air Force and Marine recruiter. And I knew nothing about the Marine Corps. I just knew army, Navy, Air Force, right? Having not grown up here, I really had no connections to the military whatsoever, never paid attention to it, no family. So I go into the Army recruiter's office, and he looked like Peter Griffin, okay? So I'm a 17-year-old kid at this point, and this guy, he's chubby, his shirt was tucked out, he's, you know, balding, glasses, I'm like... Your Army recruiter is Peter Griffin, that is great, Yes, that's what he he looked like, and I'm like, no, I, you know, something didn't seem right here, and I walked out, and I walked into the Navy guy, same thing, it's like his twin brother worked there, Um, so the Air Force said, out to lunch, come back, you know, in 45 minutes, I'm like, I'm hanging my head, I'm walking out of this building, and I hear this guy, is this, can I say some expletives here, or is this a... Family let's show. keep this let, let, let's clean it. it up a bit yeah you got it so i'm walking out of the uh the door from the recruiter and all i hear is hey are you two chicken poop yeah. to, to come in here and you know a 17 year old kid who's my ego was so high i went down the hallway i look in and this guy sitting there he looks like johnny bravo muscles are sticking out of his shirt just this pretty boy and he's got pictures of him and just muscular dudes on the beach holding guns and they're sitting on tanks like the coolest like when you think military that's your guy that like the marine corps got the best recruiter ever <laughs> you got it you say to yourself i got to be a part of that so i got excited about it this was yeah. saturday morning i got really excited about it we had a good conversation and i was still 17 so i had to get my parents to to kind of sign up but what happened was that he and by the way his name was sergeant patrick in parentheses, Animal Griffin, okay? That was my recruiter's name, and he had wow. that plaque. So Monday morning comes around. He comes to my school wearing dress blues. Brian, every girl that I had a crush on melted, and that's all they talked about for the next two weeks. That's yeah. how I made my decision to join the Marine Corps. <laughs> so I went home. I said, Mom, I really want to join the Marines. Gave her the spiel, and back then, this was 1997 or 98, probably 98 um nothing was really going on in the world probably kosovo and so she made me a deal she said okay 
I'll make you a deal. Now, my mom comes old school mentality, Russia. You got to get your education. She was a professor yeah. in a university for music. She said, if, if I sign this paper for you and let you go, you have to get a college degree. I said, deal. I just want to go be a Marine. I'm like, she's not going to remember, you know, whenever I get out. And that's how I joined the Marine Corps. She signed. Your mom didn't forget, did she? No, man. She I did remember. not forget. <laughs> eight years later, I was getting out. And she, uh, I called my mom. I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to be moving to the area uh, looking for a job. She said, so when are you signing up for school? <laughs> so what, what do you mean? She's like, you made me a promise. And I did. I got a full-time job and I got a, um, I started taking classes at University of Maryland. And I graduated and got a degree within like the next four years going, to, going at night and weekends. Man, that's awesome. When you think about joining the Marine Corps, and, and you took me through that, and, and, and yeah, you know, there are, there are a lot of guys that colleges and gals that college is just not for, and, and I have a lot of respect. I took the ASVAB as a high school senior, but I did it to get out of a class, and I was like, you know, I'm not going to join the military. I'm flat-footed. You know, I'm slow. But I have a lot of respect that, that, that people, for people that decide to give up their lives because when you join the Marine Corps or the Army or the Air Force or what have you, if you ride it out for 20 years, you give you yeah, you can retire at 38 or 39 years old, but you give up your life for the next 20 years. You go where they tell you to go. You do what they tell you to do. When you joined the Marine Corps, what changed about your life, Eric? And, and what did the Marines give you that you would not have otherwise gotten away from being a Marine? That it's not about you, that there are people who depend on you. Um, the Marine Corps turned me into a man. You know, I was a little boy who thought he knew it all and the world revolved around me. And the Marine Corps quickly teaches you that there's something bigger there, you know, through boot camp. It's the only branch that has a three month boot camp. You have to go for 12 weeks. I went to Paris Island. 12 weeks starting in June, right? June 8th, the hottest yep. months. They had sand yep. fleas and everything like that. And they drill into you the history of the Marine Corps. And they drill into you that sense of pride that we are the few, the proud, right? If you compare us to the Army that has a million people, the Marine Corps, I think, kept it around 250,000, right? So that's where the few comes from. And once you have that sense of belonging that the guy next to you is responsible for your life and I'm responsible for his life. Mm -hmm. It's just, you look at life differently. Wow. Wow. And, and you did correct me from our conversation. You did eight years in the Marine Corps and, mm -hmm. and, and, and again, where were some of the places that you got, if you can, if you can share, where were some of the places that you went and, and things like that as yeah, a Marine? Sure. Sure. So I got a chance back in 99, there was a mishap in Puerto Rico. And that was my first kind of a mini deployment to go there. They had people protesting after a bomb was dropped and a civilian got killed. Um, so we went there. Then after that, you know, I got a chance to travel all over the country, um, ended up in Afghanistan. And, you know, as soon as 9-11 happened, our unit, we, we got underway. So 9-11, like September 22nd, we left. And we headed to Albania, Egypt, um, and then right to Afghanistan. First, we stopped in Spain. That's kind of the refueling point in Rota. 
and then headed to Afghanistan. Uh, if you remember Kandahar, we were the guys that kind of mm -hmm. took over Kandahar and stayed there until the army came in right around New Year's and relieved us. From then went to like Italy, Greece, Malta, like just some awesome ports. And then uh, when we got back, this is funny about the military, I, we got back and they send us to desert training in 29 Palms in California. And as soon as we were back from that, got to go to Iraq for another six, seven months. Um, and then later on, because I am fluent in Russian and I'm a Russian speaker, they needed somebody to help out in Guantanamo Bay because a lot of the detainees there uh, either spoke Pashto, Farsi, but there were a lot of guys that came over from Uzbekistan, which is, you know, former USSR territory. And if you had a part Farsi or a Pashto linguist in Afghanistan, they would start speaking Russian to you. So I got a chance to work with some agencies, some US agencies that, that needed to get information out and help in that way as well. So um, to be honest with you, Brian, after eight years, I thought I would stay in. Uh, I would have loved to retire like Marine Corps was, you know, just I loved it. Mm. And um, I was about to retire or I was about to reenlist and I went to my girlfriend. And she said, listen, I can't have you away like this. <laughs> like I want to have a yeah. normal life. We've been together for three plus years and she mo a lot of it. I was gone. And uh, so it took a lot of thinking on my part. And um, so I ended up getting out. We moved in together and she's been my wife since April of 2007. Man, that's awesome. Let me ask yeah. you something. I, I want to step back for just a minute. You guys deployed two weeks after 9-11. And, mm -hmm. and my son, my, my soon-to-be 20-year-old son, reminded me that next year is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And, and arguably the defining moment of my life as an American citizen was 9-11. I remember where I was, what I was doing, everything else. When you find out you're going to Afghanistan and you're deployed over there, what was your thought process and the guys that you were around that you guys were now going to Afghanistan? What was the thought process like for you? Man, let's go. Let's go. This is what we've been <laughs> training for. You know, this is what we're, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And if you, I remember exactly where I was on 9-11 in Mississippi visiting a friend with his family. Um, and you know it was just hey let's go do this thing because everybody the the patriotism of the country were so united back then right we literally had um fire departments sending us pictures and signed things that we would put on the payload that our planes would drop over there if you know what i'm talking about mm -hmm. right so everybody was united the kids in schools would write letters that we would read and it was the cutest thing ever um it was, and nobody thought, you know, Afghanistan, everybody underestimated it, right? Some, mm -hmm. some crappy desert, we're going to be in and out real quick, get the guy and be done with it. I don't think anybody expected what we got. Well, we were dealing with people who had nothing to lose. And, and as Americans living at that time, Eric, I'll say this is that I think we thought ourselves to be invincible and we thought ourselves to be, well, this is, this, this happens in other parts of the world. It doesn't happen here. And the terrorists, and I'm going to say this and it may come across controversial, but to their credit, 
they knew where to attack us. They used symbolic targets to attack our country and expose our invincibility. But what they didn't count on was that we had guys like you and guys in, in every branch of our service that had that mentality of, we're going to take you out because you attacked our country. And I don't think they were counting on us to come back as strongly as we did. I think they thought they were going to cripple us. That's just my opinion. I'm just sharing an, an opinion about that. And I appreciate the mentality that you had. When you were over in Afghanistan, I, I want to kind of finish with this and then transition. And I could talk to you about this all day. I, this is just fascinating to me. And I want to speak for all the Intentional Encourager podcast audience. We thank you for your service because you did something fantastically wonderful. And we thank you for your service. When you, were you. In Af when you were in Afghanistan, what were some of the things that you saw over there that shaped you for the rest of your life? You, those things that you're never going to forget. There were people that really wanted us there because you know the taliban they're not good guys so when we were in certain areas like i got a chance to be in certain um ford operating bases because i do speak russian and once again there were some people there that uh you know they needed a russian linguist from time to time we would be you know it'd be a small group of us maybe 15 20 and then there was a few you know, Australian special forces that would join us, Canadian special forces, and just the stories that we would share by the, you know, in the evening time frame. But people would come down from the mountains and the huts that they live in, and they would give us bread to eat or thank us or shake our hands and just, you could see how happy they were that we were there. Quite a bit of times I talked to my other guys uh, that I served with, when they would come up on, uh, some of the enemy, as you would call them, those guys would just surrender really quickly because the way they even got into the fight was Taliban came to their village, grabbed them up and said, either fight or die. And then what would you do in that case? Right. So mm -hmm. what I saw there was people want freedom, like people, they may not know what that means, but they know that a lot of them, a lot of them were happy that we were there to kind of fight the bad guys that have been bullying them for years. Man, that is so powerful, Eric. And, and again, I, I just, I stopped the video cause we're, we're doing this podcast. We're doing audio and video. And what you said is so powerful, how powerful freedom is to people. I, I sense that, and I, and I want to transition to what you're doing now where you work with salespeople and you coach salespeople is the taste of freedom that you saw from the people in Afghanistan, is that what inspired you and continues to inspire you to help salespeople moving forward to find that ultimate freedom in their own careers? Hmm. Never thought of it that way, Brian. I have no idea if that, if that has any inspiration on my life. I just, I, I appreciate the freedoms that we have here because of my experiences and because I've lived I've grown up in a communist country. Like my mom would send me to the store and I know what it's like to wait for, you know, to get some butter and wait for a couple hours for that or hope there's bread left in the store, right? This isn't, we're not talking 1800s here. We're talking 1980s, right? Yeah. So 
I just have a certain appreciation for freedom. I don't know if that relates to uh, what I do with salespeople or what I do in leadership, but I do want everyone to sense, to have that sense of freedom and, and appreciation for it because it's truly remarkable. And I think a lot of people take it for granted. Yeah, there's no question, Eric, that, that, that there are times, and we've seen it through this pandemic, that, that governors have issued executive orders and shut things down and, and things we take for granted, like getting a haircut or going to church, has, has been pulled back in the name of safety and things like that. As you left the Marine Corps and you and your, your now wife had that conversation, what were you going to do transitioning from the Marine Corps into civilian life because a lot of guys have difficulty with that. How did you transition successfully from the Marine Corps to civilian life? Yeah, so that's actually how I started my book. That's that's exactly what I wrote. Shameless about book plug. We're all about it, man. Yeah, go love, go yeah, ahead, hey, man. Hey, just hold it. it up, dude. Just just hold that thing I'll, high, loud and proud. Hey, you got to be proud, right? Look, market yourself it, whenever you can. Listen, I love it. I I, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. Think about it. I was an 18-year-old kid. The only jobs I had at t up until that point was delivering pizzas and working at a grocery store. Mm -hmm. That was my career since I was 14. I was a hard worker. I worked as soon as I got my worker's permit. I could work and I worked. Um, but I did not know what I was going to do when I got out. So I went to my commanding officer. I said, sir, what am I going to do? He said, K. They called me K because um, of my last name, obviously. He said, with all the BS you've sold me through the years, <laughs> you should get into sales. And I'm like, well, what the what the heck is sales? That you is know? So, so good, I said, man. Okay. I said, all right, sir, I'll get into sales. So I started re back then. I think it was Monster.com, and I just put out a resume. I knew nothing about any of this stuff. Um, and every Aflac comp agent <laughs> reached out to me. Yeah. But what they don't realize, and this is the biggest transition, in the military, no matter what, you're getting paid on the 1st and the 15th. If you're mm -hmm. sick at home, you're getting paid 1st and 15th. If you are deployed, you're getting paid plus some extra. You're not, when you're on vacation, you're getting paid like every 1st and 15th. So there's that sense of security in the military that um, we, we kind of got used to. So the fact of commission only was so scary, I didn't go for that. But the benefit to me was that I made like $25,000 a year being in the military after eight years. Yeah. And that, you know, when you add up all the benefits and the housing and medical and all that stuff, I'm sure it's closer to 55, 60,000. But making 25 grand, when somebody offered me a position for $40,000 plus uncapped commission, it was like a dream come true. I almost doubled my pay. I was so excited for it. And I started selling copiers in Baltimore. That was my first sales job. That's the that's how I got into sales. Well, and 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 you and I are are real similar that way. I started out as a journalism major. I started out, and it's so ironic that I'm doing a podcast now and I've done radio because that's what I started out going to to Marshall University to do was to be in broadcast journalism. And then my dad was in sales, and I was like, I'll just pivot to marketing. And same thing, you know. I was like, well, I you know, I can talk, I'm, I'm good with people, but man, it's, it's so much more than that. And we'll, we'll dive into that in just a minute, but you start your career and you immediately give yourself a $15,000 a year pay raise and, and you're off to the races. Go through what that first year was like for you in sales. Again, transitioning away from the structure of the military 
to a sales job that's that is the ultimate freedom. You start when you want to start, you quit when you want to quit, you work as long as you want to, and things like that. Was that hard for you to transition from structure to that kind of freedom in sales? Well, the company that I went to was very structured in the sense of you had to be in the office by 8 a.m. or 7.30 on some Did days. that appeal to you? Let me let me stop you there. Did that appeal to you? Was that one of the things that drew you coming from structure, staying in structure? Was that, was that appealing? No, because um, it, it wasn't appealing and it wasn't not appealing. It was, I just thought that's how it is, right? Everybody mm -hmm. in the corporate world just shows up at 7.30 or 8 o'clock. I, I just didn't know what I didn't know. Today, that would not be appealing to me. <laughs> Back then, it was like, yeah, that's just yeah. how things are, you know? I had not, nothing to compare it to. And um, so, yeah, so I, you asked what was the first year like. It was I was a sponge. And because I had zero experience, no bad habits in sales, everything my manager told me to do, I would just do it. Mm -hmm. And some things worked and some things didn't work, but I did it and figured it out and kept stumbling my way into su success, you know? Well, and, and it's funny because you mentioned stumbling your way into success because a lot of people, and I've done that when I first started into sales, I just, I did like you, I would just work, 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 work. I travel, travel, travel. I'd work with everybody I could and we were growing the business and, and people would say, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. Cause I would just, I would just put my head down and work. And I, I worked in the food service brokerage world. I had Sarah Lee bakery. So I just make up my samples and I fill up my bag and I'd go see people. And we were just growing like crazy. And if you asked me what I did, I, I didn't, I, I didn't figure it out. You did something though. And I'm going to show you a, a book that I have on my bookshelf. The 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth by a guy that, that really impacted your life, mm -hmm. a guy named John Maxwell. Talk to me about the impact of John Maxwell on your life, Eric, as, as, a, as a salesperson and as a leader. Gosh, so John, I mean, John changed the whole trajectory of my life. Um, so forward probably 10 years since my first sales job out of the Marine Corps, and I've already have managed the sales team for Xerox. I've sold some international outsourcing services. And um, I became a sales director for DCA Imaging Systems. And when I took over the team at DCA Imaging Systems, I took over a team that was way more experienced, sold more than I've sold, have been together for 16 years, and really did not believe that they needed a director of sales. Mm -hmm. And it was such an uphill battle because I made, I've made, I did everything that I know not to do as a brand new leader coming into a place right now. Like I came in, I started making changes. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to impress and I wanted to be the the man, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's silly. So I realized, <laughs> yeah, but, but I was young. I mean, I, did, I really didn't understand. And I realized that, you know, if seven people don't like you, it's not them. <laughs> like there's something I'm not doing right. Yeah. Well, I've been an early riser for a long time. I'm in the gym about 5 a.m. And I started taking my time on a treadmill uh, to watch YouTube videos on leadership. So every time I was driving or I was on treadmill, I would look at YouTube um, leadership videos on YouTube and John Maxwell keeps popping up. Sooner or later, I guess YouTube called him and said, hey, you know, this guy keeps looking you up. <laughs> 
his team started you were a youtube me. stalker man you just didn't stalker. realize yeah. it yeah no I, I was like in love with him because everything he said it connected me in such a way that i would start applying the things he was talking about and i would see people's reaction um and i'll share so and, and let me let me share this and and, sure. and i i totally agree with you in my mind john maxwell is is america's foremost leadership expert there's no question that the guy has has unlocked a lot of things about leadership and I, i'm a huge fan of john maxwell as well so so when when we were talking and you mentioned that that really clicked in my mind and so continue with how you got i didn't mean to interrupt you i just you know i, I wanted to throw that in there yeah not a problem i appreciate it so um there's a team that you know you can get certified to teach John's materials, but they don't necessarily pitch that to you like that, right? So it's, mm -hmm. hey, are you interested in developing your leadership abilities and becoming a good leader? And I was at that point in my life where I was just hungry for growth, and I wanted to be a good leader, and I wanted to improve my leadership skills. So I invested probably like four to six thousand bucks at that point, and went and to get my certification as a leadership development expert. But while there, I realized that these guys actually help people start their own companies as leadership trainers and you get licensed to teach a bunch of John stuff, including 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth. Mm -hmm. So at one point I got 10 business owners together in Baltimore and I said, hey, I wanna run a mastermind group for 10 weeks. It'll be completely free. I just wanna see if this works, right? It'll be a test. And we did it on his book, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, which, which is probably one of the best books he's written on leadership. And after these 10 weeks, we meet Wednesday evenings from 7 to 9.30. After the 10 weeks, um, three or four of them came up to me and said, Eric, we really like, this stuff really works. Can you come in and do this with our managers on, on our team? And I said, sure but this time it was paid. So I had to figure out how much to charge, uh, came up with a price point, and that's how I started my company. Mm. Incredible, incredible. What was the singular thing that you pulled out of, of the teachings of John Maxwell that impacted you the most? Wow, there's so much. I mean, John's known for everything rises and falls on leadership. And if you believe in that, if you look around you start seeing everything in the light of well how is the leadership in this scenario right people aren't performing let's look at leaders i mean that's why football coaches get fired when the team's not yeah, performing good right good point we're, we're looking for the leader all the time um i realized that it's a skill that can be learned and i also realized that it leader's job i think one of the main things i realized is that a leader's job is to develop other leaders it's not to just lead people like if you lead people and then you get hit by a bus and nobody knows what you've been doing or you don't have anybody that they can just hop into your spot and lead that team you have failed as a leader mm -hmm. and now that, that's huge because there's so many leaders in companies that don't develop their people they don't develop their replacement and i think a great leader uh what they need to do as soon as they become a leader is start developing their replacement that's a great point because most people think that that and, and again we go back to the invincibility that we talked about before around 9 11 you have a lot of good leaders that go man i'm going to be here for a long time and I, i'm just going to 
you know, I'm going to have an impact and things like that. And most leaders are afraid to develop their replacements because they, they, their fear is I'm going to make my replacement so good that I'm going to become expendable and that they're going to promote this, this, this guy or gal around me and over top of me. And that shouldn't be the thinking at all. When you think about that concept, Eric, why is it, do you think that leaders are afraid to develop their replacements? I think it's ego. I think, you know, human nature, and I have two sons and I see it. We want to take credit for all the good. And naturally, we never want to be, you know, the ones who the finger's pointing at when things go bad. Mm -hmm. But for leaders, you almost have to develop the complete opposite of that, right? So I learned that one of the ways I could build my team better is that when we do anything good, it's always the team's um, responsibility. Like, we did this because that person closed the deal. This person decided to call on someone. If, even if it was my idea, a lot of times they'll say it was their idea. Mm -hmm. And then the opposite of that is when we're failing, that's always my fault. It's not their fault. Mm -hmm. They didn't close the deals because I didn't train them well enough. They didn't close the deals because I didn't provide them with enough resources. They didn't close the deal. Now, look, sometimes you just don't have the right player on your team, right? But guess what? You don't have the right player on your team because you didn't hire the right player for your team. And then yeah, you didn't develop point. that player, right? It's still my fault, mm -hmm. right? It's nobody else's fault. And as soon as I can realize that as a leader, what I see is the, the ownership appreciates that, right? Don't you mm -hmm. hate somebody that's always blaming somebody else? Mm -hmm. so yeah, exactly. For me, it's like, you know, take responsibility 100% for everything as a leader and you're going to do well and then develop your leaders. Man, that is so good. That is so good. The the book that you wrote, B2B Sales Secrets, take me through the process of writing that. What was going through your mind as, as you started to, to have the idea to do this? And kind of what was the impetus behind it? You know, I just, something was pulling on me to write a book. I always wanted to write a book. I don't know why. It just seemed like an impossible mountain. It's kind of like people that are training for a marathon. Mm -hmm. It's the equivalent for me. Like I'm not a writer. I'm not like I, I hate writing, and I actually hated books since I was 26. Since then, I read more books than most people. But um, so I started writing a leadership book because I thought, you know, I'll just follow in John's footsteps. Mm -hmm. And I get to chapter three, and I realize that I'm just rewriting John's stuff because that's really where all my leadership knowledge came from, right? And I'm like, well, I, I didn't feel authentic with it. I said, well, what can I write about that really, uh, that's mine, that that comes from me? And I'm like, well, sales. I, uh, you know, I, I'm going to take you back. So the initial company, when I first started selling uh, in Baltimore, they gave me a trifold brochure, right? So anytime, my job was to go out cold call, gain interest. And then when I was in front of the person on the initial meeting, I had a trifold brochure that I would pull out. And on the right-hand side, it would tell you all about our company and how long we've been in business, how awesome we are, all our product services. My goodness. My goodness. You can't sell like that anymore, right? No, you're 100% right. That's the only way I knew how to sell. But so many companies still believe, you know, you can't blame the company because people that are growing these companies, they're so proud in it. Mm -hmm. They want to go tell the story about the company. The yeah, truth is nobody cares about your company. <laughs> well, and, and what happens is, Eric, and I've been in sales, I've been in sales and customer engagement for 25 years. What happens is you lose yourself in the script. Mm -hmm. You lose what makes you 
the unique person that you are and the unique value proposition you bring to your customer, you lose yourself in the script. And, and so, yeah, you, you know, it, it, it's, it's a problem that a lot of people don't want to solve. So when, when you're writing your book and you're thinking about that, where was your V8 moment? What was your aha moment? Like, yeah, this is, this is what, this is what I really want to share. So my aha moment came a couple of years before I wrote the book. I got a chance to go to a Dale Carnegie sales training course. I wanted by complete accident. Okay. I'm a, I'm a Jeffrey Gittimer fan. I don't know if you're familiar with Jeffrey Gittimer. No, Jeffrey he, Gittimer well, yeah. Yeah. You know, so the sales Bible, his 21.5 laws of selling. Um, a friend of mine, actually a guy that I used to manage, called me up. He said, hey, I got this ticket. Jeffrey Gittimer is going to be in Northern Virginia to go hear a seminar. I can't make it. I have to go out of town. Can you? Do you want it? I'm like, yeah, I want it. I love Jeffrey Gittimer. So I end up going to Tyson's Corner in Northern Virginia, mm -hmm. sat through this thing, and outside there were vendors. I just dropped my name, dropped the card into a bowl. A couple of weeks later, I get a call saying, your card was picked and you've won the Dale Carnegie sales training course. And I've it's gone a, through that. It's very good. It's very it's good. It's awesome. It's a three-day seminar that was just like really, really good. And it's a couple of thousand bucks. So the fact that I won it, I knew I was meant to be there. And in there, the, the guy writes day, on day two, he wrote on the board the letters G-O-Y. And he said, can anybody tell me what this stands for? And I'm like, nobody knew what that stood for. Um, and he says, that stands for get over yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm like, huh, that was my aha moment, Brian. Get over yourself. Nobody cares about anything to do with your company at first. They only want to know is, can you s help me with my problem? Yeah, yeah. That's and it. and I'm, a, I'm a huge Zig Ziglar fan. Mm -hmm. The Zig, Zig's my guy. Zig always said, you can have anything in life you want if you'll simply help enough people get what they want. And, 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 and it's very similar. And, and, you know, the thing of it is, Eric, Dale Carnegie wrote his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, in 1936. Mm -hmm. Here we are 84 years later still talking about the influence of, of Dale Carnegie and, and that kind of legacy. When you think about what you have written for salespeople in B2B sales, does leg did legacy enter your mind when you did that? Is it? Did you think to yourself, "This is something I want to stand the test of time"? I don't think I thought that deep into it. I wish I did. But what this book does is it, it's a roadmap, and it was designed for people who are just starting out, or who have been in sales and just need a jolt. Like if you've been in sales and your numbers are stagnant you don't see your new business growing and your current you know reoccurring revenues are declining this is a good book because it's really a roadmap from how do you start your day and it's a step-by-step -step process to closing a deal and then what to do post the sale to really build that relationship with your client and the premise of it you know it's all it's all built on that GOY principle of get mm -hmm. over yourself Right. And so I took everything I learned from John Maxwell. I took all the, you know, the few years I had of training and developing leaders. And by the way, John says uh, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. What is sales? You know, sales to me is influence. Well, if sales is influence and leadership is influence, then leadership essentially is sales. 
because as leaders, we're influencing people. As salespeople, we're leading people. To me, they're synonymous. Here's how I would define sales. And, and I've got this little quote that I wrote on, on and it's on my, my keyboard monitor. And it simply says, sales is connecting great people to great products with great purpose. That's awesome. That's how I would define sales because it has to be people, purpose, and product or service, but, but the service is a product as well. And, and so, yeah, I love what you said there. And it just ties so beautifully to that thought that I've always had about sales. Eric, as we wrap up our conversation, man, you've been awesome. So good with your time. This has been such a great conversation. What is your single biggest piece of encouragement that you would leave with the intentional encourager audience? Man, we are creators. Don't live your life by default. Live your life by design. And I coach people one-on-one. -on -one. And the biggest thing, and these are C-level executives to real estate agents who aren't leading teams. People aren't very clear and on what is it that they truly want. And the second we take time out of our day, like if, if your vision of what you want to accomplish or who you want to be is not clear, stop what you're doing and get clear on that first. Because then everything is impactful. Everything is meaningful in your life. And that's the biggest thing. Once we design who we want to be, everything changes for us. So like, um, who was it? Uh, Nightingale, Earl Nightingale, right? No, mm -hmm. no, it was Zig Ziglar. Uh, don't be a wondering generality, be a meaningful specific. That encouraged me that, that every time I hear Zig say that, I want to I wanna understand, am I being a meaningful specific? Is what I'm doing intentional mm -hmm. or is it not? And you're an intentional encourager, right? People mm -hmm. don't, like, as a leader, here's, here's one thing you can do as a leader right now that really ties into this whole podcast, Brian. And this changed my life intentionality is key so if you're a leader and leader doesn't mean you're in a management position you can be a leader as a salesperson right give three people a compliment every day intentionally walk up to the receptionist and tell her she's an amazing mom when she mm -hmm. tells you what she did with her kids right or um, hey you you know I know how hard you've been working it really shows give three people just a compliment a day and if you intentionally do that you'll see how much your following increases right so it's yeah. all about being intentional with everything you do man that is so good because I've said all along there's a vast difference between appreciation and value because to your point it's easy to say oh I appreciate you okay for what or instead of going up to someone and saying, you know what I really value about you is you are intentional with your kids. You're such a good mom. I have seen you do this, this, and this. And, and, and Eric, it's funny you mentioned that because I shared that same piece with uh, someone in my church that was transitioning into leadership. And I said, let me give you a piece of advice. You take everybody on your team, take one person a week, and you give them something of value about them that you admire about themselves. And I said, they'll run through. And I said it this way. And I said, you may get offended, but I'm going to say it this way. They'll run through hell in a gas suit for you. Mm -hmm. They will, they will, they will charge hell with water pistols for that's you right. because that that's just what leadership does, man. This has been so good. My goodness, man, we could do two hours. 
ultimately you want to be the type of leader that you're charging hell with a water pistol for your people. Yeah. You're very no. well said. Very well <laughs> said. Eric, let people know where they can find you, connect with you. Um, tell them about your resources, your books, your podcast. I'm going to give you the last couple minutes to just tell people where they can find your resources. Yeah, sure. So Facebook group, if you guys are on Facebook right now, it's B2B Sales Secrets, but I might be changing that to Lead, Sell, Grow. We're really building a nice community there. Uh, Lead, Sell, Grow podcast, me and Harry, we're having some amazing guests on our show, and it's all about leadership, sales, and personal development and growing. Uh, my website is under construction, should be done with the next couple of weeks uh, at The Goal Guide, but I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. Connect with me wherever you're, wherever you are. The Goal Guide or Eric Konovalov. And that's spelled K-O-N-O-V-A-L-O-V, Eric Konovalov. Eric, man, this has been so good. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your service to our country. I appreciate you being on the Attentional Encourager podcast. It was an honor, Brian. Thanks for having me. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Meads. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. And until next time, remember everyone, everywhere, at any time, and any place can be an intentional.